Welcome to the Don Podcast, a Minnesota music conversation, recorded at CCX Studio, produced by Javi, and engineered by Jimmy Morris. And now, here's your host. We're joined on this episode by Barry Hagen, who uh, worked for many years uh, as repairing guitars at uh, New Capay. Um, roughly, what years were you there kind of working? Well, that's quite an introduction, Don. Do you think that's true? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean, I heard that rumor too. <laughs> uh, yeah, it goes back a long time in my years, I guess. I went back to um, November of 1984, and I got out of there in November of 1992. Well, that was a pretty exciting time in Minnesota music. So you must have really met a lot of a lot of people there. You know, a lot, a lot of musicians. Well, I did. I mean, if looking back in history, I wish and I could have been there maybe five years before the fact, but New Capay Music was one of the preeminent guitar shops in the Twin Cities area mm -hmm. for many, many years. And I remember when I was first really interested in guitars, reading Guitar Player Magazine and seeing a lot of their work their custom guitars being in uh, the pages of Guitar Player magazine. Okay. And I thought, oh, that's a really cool place. And I had gone up there a number of times as a customer, but it wasn't until I was um, going to a, a um, program for guitar repair, musical instrument repair in Red Wing, that I really thought, you know, I really want to do this for a career, and I want to see maybe if I can work at New Capay Music. Right. Uh, so what made you decide to go to the guitar school? I mean, to the repair school? I mean, was it just, you must have been in, well, interested, little, interested in wood. There's a little bit of family conflict there because okay. I had gone a, a four and a half years of college and studying both history and business administration. And my dad thought, oh, you're going to be a top-notch <laughs> CPA kind of guy. And that didn't really work out that well. And I had moved home. I had been going to school out in Tacoma, Washington. And uh, I got home with really nothing to do. And mm -hmm. my mom suggested, there's a really interesting stringed instrument repair or a repair program in Red Wing Minnesota, you should check that out. And I can see my dad in the background rolling his eyes like, what the fuck are you think you're doing, <laughs> you dude? Go out and make some money. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it took me a while to get hooked up to that program. They were booked for that year. So I ended up taking an electronic repair program. And um, the following year, I did the stringed instrument repair program. And um, that was in 1992. I'm sorry, 1982 and 83. And when I got out of there, I um, got a job right away at a guitar place, a guitar repair shop in Atlanta, Georgia, called oh, okay. Atlanta Guitar Works. And that worked out really great until the two owners of that company got into a little bit of an argument and they shut down the phones, the telephones. Um, so all the work dried up. So I eventually moved back to Minnesota, uh, where I spent about a uh, three quarters of a year at a little music store in Stillwater repairing 
guitars and violins. And I think in November, I got a phone call from Newt Capay Music asking me if I could help them out because they were swamped. Mm -hmm. So that's what started it out. And so when you were down in Atlanta, was there a lively scene down there? And did you get to meet some people down there? Was, well, there, was there much it, going on? I didn't well, yeah, I met a lot of people. I did a lot of great guitar repair work, and there was a lot of good live music down there. Um, one of the repair guys there, his name is Chris uh, Aderig. He recently passed away, I believe, from esophageal cancer or something, you know, something terrible like that. Mm -hmm. um, he was a top-notch Les Paul guy. Oh, okay. He, manufactured or he replicated Les Paul's and he did amazing work. Uh, the Southeast is totally different from Nashville scene or the New York scene or the LA scene, or if you even want to compare it to the Minneapolis scene, just uh, when you think about Southern rock and roll and Dickie Betts and the Allman brothers, uh, guys like that would come into the shop. Mm -hmm. And, um, but then at the same time in the college radio stations, you had bands like REM. Right. Yeah. And one of my first big clients was a bass player from REM and later Peter Bach from REM mm -hmm. brought in a Rickenbacker six string guitar. And he said, I want this converted to a 12 string. I'm a, I don't know how <laughs> I did it, but you know, if you look at a classical guitar, and the headstock has got the two sides of the headstock that are open that takes the tuning pregs from the edge of the headstock instead of coming underneath okay. like a typical guitar. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, let's try that. And it worked out awesome. It worked out great, but don't ask me to, <laughs> to do that tonight. <laughs> um, and then, so you say it's, it's a different kind of a scene down there so is is guitars different from place i mean there's different guitars there's less pauls there's i, I don't know i don't know much about no, guitars it's not so, you're so much have the to, guitars it's I the mean, sound though right and so is there different sounds from different repairs can you repair things to sound differently or not so much is a guitar just sound like a guitar uh, well a guitar is like a voice okay. a singer's voice stratocasters compared to telecasters compared to Gibsons mm -hmm. compared to Rickenbackers, they all have their unique voice, and it's a lot to do with the manuf manufacturing. It also has a lot to do with the wood okay. that's involved. So, do you have to repair them differently depending on what it is, or is all guitars kind of repaired under one standard format? Well, but when you, I suppose it depends on what the repair is, but I mean, exactly. when, you, when you're doing just like a tune-up or a fret thing. Well, a tune-up is, is a tune-up. I mean, on an electric guitar, on modern electric guitars, each string has their individual saddle. It can be raised and lowered, and it could be moved backward and forward. And that's important because a guitar is... Um, an instrument that needs to have each string tuned specifically to the string. Okay. Therefore, the ability to move that saddle piece either forward or or backward. If you play the harmonic at the 12th fret 
and then compare the fretted note, those two notes have to be the same. If they're not, the guitar will not play in tune. Okay. So for studio musicians, uh, a lot of times they'd come in often to move that string or set of strings forward or backward because wood is a natural... Um, Element kind of, yeah. Yeah, so I it's mean, it's, it's almost like a sponge. It, it can either absorb or contract mm -hmm. based on the climate. Yeah. So Minnesota, we have, it's either cold and dry or hot mm -hmm. and humid. And that's going to affect the playability of that guitar. Okay. So a lot of, a lot of what I would do at either New Cape or Atlanta Guitar Works is to educate people on your guitar is going to do this in the summertime mm -hmm. and it's going to do the opposite. And so you need to stay on top of that. Yeah. Uh, and I was going to ask you too, you know, it, with musicians, it seems like I was listening to a, a podcast with Night Bob on it. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a famous engineer. And, and he said he, he t knew a little bit about fixing guitars and stuff. And so he was always on tour. And he would say that these guys, their guitars, but they'd say they didn't work. And then he would end up just turning a screw a little bit or just adjusting this a little bit. And he said it would make a total difference. And then the guy thought he was a hero because he was doing it. He says, I'm no, I'm no guitar repairman, but I knew enough. And that's kind of what you're talking about. Is, exactly. Is, is you, it's there's education behind not just playing a guitar, but how a guitar actually works. Well, touring mus musicians today are not like they were back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. They're much more sophisticated. They have road techs. You know, they're traveling with dozens of guitars. Mm -hmm. There might be two or three guitar techs per tour, one for a bass player, one for each guitar player, and they have to take care of the guitars and make sure they play accordingly. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I rec remember back in the 80s sometime, Lanny Kravitz came to town, First Avenue, to play a show, and his, apparently the guitar didn't, it, it played like shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I get a phone call, and I go down to First Avenue, and I grab the guitar, and it was way, way out of tune. And I brought it back to Lanny, and I said, um, I don't know if you know this, but he had a guitar tech that sh he could put on a set of strings and he could tune it, but he had no, mm. no clue about intonation. Okay. And so I told Lenny, this is what you got to do a couple times a year. Mm. And he was, it was great. <laughs> the show was but, great too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there is a lot of education. How, how often are you educating some, um, you know, how often were you educating somebody about how their guitar actually works and the workings of a guitar? And then, you think many of them caught on, or you think they just said, "Okay, fine. Next time it's out of tune, I'll bring it back to you, and you can just do it again." And I don't well, have to worry about. Well, I have a kind it. of, I, mean, a, I have a kind of a funny story. It's about a previous guest of yours, Terry Isaacson. Okay. A bunch of years ago, I was asked to help set up guitars at one of the Lennon shows, mm. and I finally met Terry, and. I set up his guitar and he got my phone number and I had done a bunch of work for him and I kind of instructed him on this is how you set up your guitar, mm -hmm. this is how you do intonation, and I haven't seen Terry since. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was going to kind of ask you that, that you know, uh, I was in the construction business and, and we were always told, you know, 
when the guy comes, when you're going out to someone's house and doing something and the guy's looking over your shoulder and asking you questions, don't answer him because the next time you ain't going to come back out again because he's going to end up doing it himself. Did you ever feel that way or did you feel that you were kind of part of the, part, you know, part of the community where you had to kind of help these guys out and that, you know, you, you had plenty of work and, or, or were you a little scared of teaching these guys? No, your, I mean, your some trade? people can work a wrench and a screwdriver and some people can't. Mm-hmm. You know, when I go to the gas station, I know how to put gas in my car, and that's about it. You know, anything else, I'm taking it to the dealer. All right. Uh, and then uh, uh, tools, the tools of the trade. Let's talk a little bit about some of the tools. Is there, is there special, there's got to be specialty tools, and uh, are they expensive, and do you, is there a lot of them, or is it just standard uh, screwdrivers, pliers. Oh no, hammer, uh, ham, uh, a big hammer. <laughs> big hammer, BFH, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, there's specific clamps mm-hmm. that are made out of wood. They're called camp clamps. They're padded with uh, a cork. So when you're working on an acoustic guitar, you're not going to mess up the finish. Okay. Right. So if you got a glue, a separated top from the rib you can squeeze it back until the glue sets up right mm-hmm. um and there's sound hole clamps where you if you need to re-glue the bridge on an acoustic guitar that will go in and clamp down uh, so yeah there's some specialty tools um one of the biggest tools that i brought with me to all my repair locations was a um it was like a table that the guitar would set in that would simulate string tension. Okay. And after the guitar would be locked into that, I could take the strings off, remove the frets, redress the fretboard, put in a new set of frets, and it would play amazing. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. Wood, when it moves around, has a mind of its own. It might twist to the right or the left. It might hump up. A tool like that, I can isolate the high and low spots and take care of those problems, put in a new set of frets, and um, the owners are amazed. Yeah. It's just amazing results. Um, and, then, and then you said, you know, you talked about the guy down in Atlanta that you met or that you worked with. Yeah, yeah, um, Chris. Yeah. Um, is there, you know, like in, in the city here, is there a lot of, repair guys or is it a small community you know i I think it's gotten pretty big because that um trade school in red wing is pretty popular and people come from all over the country to do that when i was doing it there weren't a lot of people doing it professionally and the people that were doing it um probably learned basic woodworking skills as they would apply to guitars. And there wasn't a lot of knowledge back in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. There is now. Mm-hmm. And some of the, you know, also now is that you have computer technology. Oh, you okay. have yeah. luthiers that are using CNC computer technology to build their guitars. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have that back in the 80s. Right. And I suppose with so many people taking people on tour with them, the shop guitar guy is kind of uh, not as busy. Uh, you know, when someone comes to town and 
or there's a tour going on. They, they have a guy, they didn't used to have a guy go with them that knew how to repair the guitar and fix the guitar. They just stopped in every city. Well, you know, you've got... So that adds a lot to the people. You've got your basic putting a set of strings on, tuning it up, probably checking the action and the intonation. Most guitar techs in the 80s should have known that. Mm-hmm. As time went on and tours got more and more sophisticated, some of these guitar techs really knew their stuff. I remember when um, Steve I was playing guitar with David Lee Roth, they came to the Met Center, and I was called out to the Met Center to do some fret work for Steve I. Mm -hmm. Um, The guitar tech that met me standing in front of a road case it was probably five or six feet tall by two foot deep and five feet wide with two doors with drawers and drawers of floyd rose guitar bridges and pickups and other and i thought oh (laughs) this is a wave of the future you know i'm kind of a i think i was around at the time where that type of thing wasn't existing at all you saw the future before it kind of came a little bit it's kind of the future because now like i said most guitar techs going on road with tours are really Mm -hmm. educated and they know how to do more than putting on a set of strings Mm -hmm. did you ever get an offer to go on the road with somebody or is that something that you didn't want to do uh no i i never did and uh i there was an ex- Jim Boquist a long time ago had he was working a lot with uh, a Westerberg and was suggesting that maybe I could do some road work for him and I said I, I don't think that's my yeah you know my thing it, you got to kind of be a different kind of guy to go on on those tours and and stuff you know a lot of people say they like to you know, be a roadier, they'd like to do this, but it's it's pretty tough work and it's pretty A guitar hard tech and a, and a guitar of... repairman are two different things. Okay. Well, what's the difference? Let's hear the difference. Well, you got to have a shop full of tools to glue a broken neck or put on a set of frets. You can't necessarily do that on the road. Okay. So they're... So they just do like minor work. It's a lot of a minor work a, a tech does, right. whereas, whereas the repair yep. does the, yep. a lot of more major stuff. Mm-hmm. So is that what, when you when you were in the shop and stuff, were you doing more major work than you were kind Ab- of the, the Absolutely. Okay. So there's a specialty in it. A lot of fret work, a lot of broken headstocks, um, both on acoustic and electric guitars. Mm-hmm. Um it was all different types of repairs. And uh, and it, how much is there a difference between, like, electric guitar and acoustic guitar? And then, like, um, like someone playing jazz and someone playing rock or someone playing singer-songwriter? I mean, are they is there a huge setup difference? Or is, well, there, or is it just the... There the, actually is. A lot of players are very individual, and they like their strings set a specific height. Mm-hmm. Right, so some like it real high, some like it really low. I'll give you a good example: Jelly Bean Johnson from the time. Everybody thinks of him as a great drummer, and he is. Mm-hmm. But he's an exceptional guitar player. Okay. And he would come in, and he w- would want his string action as low as you could go. 
And I kept going lower and lower, <laughs> and he'd say, lower, Barry. <laughs> and so, yeah. And, and what does that do? What, how does that change the, the sound of the guitar? It, it, or is it just the finger it, action? It's the finger action, okay. how easy it is to play the guitar. So is lower easier than higher? Or? For a lot of people it is. Oh, okay. So it's real individual. It's very individual. So you've got to know that when you're working on someone's guitar, you really have to know that individual. You have to ask a lot of questions. Okay. Like Jim May, a lot of people know Jim May that's probably listening to his program, used to be the manager at Newt Capay, but he's been in a lot of bands locally mm -hmm. he likes really light gauge strings and really low action okay and other players like real tall action mm -hmm. and it, it depends on how they pluck and attack the string okay. the more aggressively you attack that string it's going to vibrate more and with that vibration you get potentially a lot of trouble now if you're not attacking it and you're letting the amplifier do the work you can get away with really low action. Okay. So, uh, between like a, like I say, between like a jazz guy and and a hard rock guy, um, there's both on both sides. I mean, there can be a jazz guy that's you 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 think of a jazz guy as being more technical and more that they would want a more a sound a specific sound than a rock guy that's just kind of well, I guess fashion away, but. What you're you're saying, making a lot of generalizations right. because you I look am. at somebody like Al Dimiola that plays that real staccato type of jazz fusion rock and compare that to somebody like Jimmy Hall mm -hmm. who plays a more traditional archtop acoustic guitar. Jazz guitar are two different uh, uh, things. Right, but the, car, but, but the guitar itself is basically the same. I mean, the guitar itself, the setup, not the same, but I mean, if they both of them brought it in, you would fix them. You could fix them both basically the same, just knowing. You tell their me style. what you want, I'll do it for you. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's interesting because. And then I would always. You and, know, I, and I do make those generalizations because I don't know that much about guitar and sound and stuff. And so to the average fan like me, a guitar, you know, you think of a jazz guy, Al Demiol, as being totally different than someone like Jimmy Page that they would. You know that they would have totally different guitars and want different things but what you're saying is you know it's it's just the individual guy you got jimmy pages in the jazz and you got uh, al demiola's in the in the rock world right you know, right have their stuff mm -hmm. interesting and uh, we're going to go into a song by reynold philkipsy oh Philipsy. i really tried i tried reynold, reynold i'm really sorry okay i, I am let, let terrible me, with names can i do the introduction <laughs> yeah, don go ahead. all right there's and a couple I, of guys that um <laughs> I knew from Nootkape music, awesome guitar players, awesome songwriters. Reynold Philipsick was the lesson director at Nootkape for years and years. He later went on to do lessons at Willie's American mm -hmm. Guitars. Okay. Um, he teamed up with Scott Yoho, which was a sales guy at Nootkape, another awesome songwriter who had a band called Auto Body Experience. This is a collaboration, songwriting collaboration on them. I honestly think that most of the guitar work on the tune was done by Reynold, but Reynold um, and Scott, great guys, great guitar players. Uh, before we go into the song, 
what was the setup for for Reynolds? Can you talk about his? Can you say what he wanted, or can you? Is that something? You're asking me to remember that, Don. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're not going to remember. Well, the thing with Reynolds, he played both electric guitar and he also kind of masters the Django Django Reinhardt style, okay, which is a little higher action, and the strings are higher and plucked heavier. So it. Depends. depends on his style. Okay, it depends on what he's playing and yeah. what he's doing at that time. Yeah. All right. So this is Finster Carlson and the five one five, and it's by Reynold Philipsick and you. Scott Yoho. Fenster's in the basement playing with his toys Louise is cooking upstairs making lots of noise She thinks the old man's crazy playing with his train His useless little hobbies time piss down the drain Fenster Carson in the 515 Fenster Carson in the 515 Bakes ten dozen cookies and fusses with the mess Creates a tiny station scene, that's what he does the best The moon shines in the window block, his basement world is real She calls him down, it's getting late, he hollers back, big deal Fence to Carson in the 515 Fence to Carson in the 515 In his finished basement, Fence is the engineer He makes and make the mountains and the he holds dear. He likes the older trains the best, the ones that ran on coal. He drops some pellets down the stack and smoke comes out the hole. Vince to Carson in the 515. Vince to Carson in the 515. Vince to Carson in the 515. Vince to Carson in the 515.
that was a uh, Reynold. Go ahead. Reynold Philipsick <laughs> and Scott Yoho. If anybody wants to know, that's off Reynold's album, The Peter Pan Principle. That was published in 1989. Yeah. And uh, we're here with uh, Barry Hagen, who uh, repaired a lot of guitars for these guys. And, and you, you talked about him and, and Scott Yoho and the auto body experience. And so fixing these guys' guitars and knowing how they play and their sound and everything, you must have really had to go out and see a lot of the bands, see them actually play to get an idea of of what they were what they were like or does that not come into well, the repairs doing guitar repair work wasn't just doing guitar repair work right. it was going out and hanging out with these guys and having fun and watching them play in their bands right right so it was entertainment too it's, yeah i can't think of uh, another is, time in my life that i didn't have more fun mm -hmm. really and it is it, but it's also part of the job right i mean if you're not doing that you're really not putting your all into the job to not know these people like exactly that. and you just have to ask a lot of questions i mean if every time i would do a repair i would make the musician the guitar player sit down play the guitar mm -hmm. does it play okay do you need adjustments mm -hmm. before they would leave mm -hmm. and 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 to hear them out and play and i mean how, how often were you going out and seeing people were you seeing pretty much everybody play i mean even not only your, the people who were your clients and pe that brought their guitars well, in, but so other people. there are so many different great musicians and guitar players that work in that new Capeg. Um, you'd go out and see everybody. Mm -hmm. it, was, it's just, it was just part of the job. Then, huh? I oh, wouldn't or? call it part of the job. It was just part well, of, it was part of the lifestyle. Okay, okay. Yeah. You know, it, the job the, part was almost second nature. It's mm -hmm. like getting to hang out with these guys is a lot of fun. <laughs> like the big benefit, huh? There's uh, the big yeah. Oh, there's a paycheck? <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, and then you said you were down in Stillwater uh, before Nuka Pay. Yeah. Uh, how did the Nuka Pay people find out about you that they asked you to come up? Well, and, that's and kind play? of a long, convoluted story. I remember when I was working at the, or when I was going to school at Red Wing, I had come up to Newt Capay to uh, submit a resume application. Oh, so you wanted to get in uh, because of the magazines and stuff. You yeah, kind of wanted yeah, to get yeah. into Newt Capay. That yeah, was you, so, you were aiming for that as a goal to get into Newt Capay. Yep, so at one point, I went up there with a resume. I know I, I don't think I met Carl Diedolf, one of the owners. Jeff Hill, the other owner, had left used to pay at that point um i'm pretty much sure i got walked around by jim may who was in charge of that time okay and they basically said thanks for the application <laughs> but we don't need anybody right now that was in the summer probably of 1983 or something like that well when i was working in stillwater for this little family music store they had suggested, uh, well, do you want to go to the NAM show in Chicago? NAM means National Association of Musical Merchandisers. Oh, okay. And that was in June or so in 1984. It was, I flew out of Midway Airlines, and I saw a, a guy that was standing there that looked like he was probably a musician. So we started to chat a little bit and ended up being Dave Roussan, oh, okay. who... He had a he's had a long history at Newt Capay. Okay, um, and we talked on the f on the flight and afterwards, and apparently he must have remembered me, 
because in by November of 1984, I was doing violin <laughs> repair work <laughs> at uh, Water Music in Stillwater, and I got a phone call from New Capay Music, and they said, we need a repairman ASAP. Can you help us out? I said, what's the deal? I says, well, Prince and Sheila E are getting ready to go on the Purple Rain Tour, and we're swamped. So... I was going back and forth between Stillwater and Minneapolis mm -hmm. okay. doing two jobs for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got my foot in the door at Newt Capay. The other guitar repairman at Newt Capay at the time was Mark Sampson. He did all the paint work. Okay. And he did a lot of the guitar repairs as well, but primarily he did the paint work. Dave Roussan never knew how to do that. Uh-huh. So one of the main reasons I think that they hired me is because I knew how to paint. Okay. So that's how I got my and, start at Newt. And then is there special is there specialties like painting and and woodworking and fretting and what the person that makes it's called a luthier? luthier? They actually make the guitar. Yeah. I mean, well, that's kind of a, a yeah. general term, or that comes from the term lute, which was a medieval mm -hmm. instrument mm -hmm. with many strings, strings on it yeah. so hence the word lute turned into luthier okay and so that came to encompass guitar guys as well guys so are you are you considered luthier then or not uh, or how, what do you well, what do you I've actually consider yourself as far as retired retired <laughs> but not for long <laughs> um i don't know when i think of the term luthier i think Locally, I think of people like uh, Dave Patterson, who's a gu jazz guitar luthier. Okay. Um, Charlie Hoffman. Well, I've heard that name a lot. Hoffman Guitars, one of the most famous guitar places in the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. um, um, there's another guy, a, new, a newer guy by the name of Tim Reed, who does amazing luthier work. Okay. Um, so when I think of a luthier, I think of a guy that's going to make an acoustic guitar. Yeah, when you say uh, an electric guitar guy is a luthier, okay, <laughs> whatever. But so many electric guitar luthiers, <laughs> and you, I'm a little sarcasm <laughs> in my voice, are buying pre-made necks and bodies okay. and they're putting the parts together and they're doing a custom paint job and hey look at me mom i got a custom guitar mm -hmm. but it's really just a frankenstein guitar of a bunch of different parts he's well, not that's actually funny. frankenstein that was one of the names of eddie van halen's oh really first guitar the frankenstein that's at the smithsonian mm, okay but um so, I mean, you, you look at some of the guitar manufacturers from the 50s and 60s, especially uh, uh, a Fender. They had machines making bodies and necks. Mm -hmm. They would screw the neck onto the body with four wood screws. Um, <laughs> you have all these, you know, Going back to these custom guitars that Newt Capay would make, a lot of their custom guitars were made from store-bought parts. Mm -hmm. yeah. The Schechter Guitar Company made necks and bodies. Mm -hmm. Warmoth Guitar Company out of Washington State made necks and bodies. 
Um, you put a bridge on it, some pickups, a paint job, and you've got a custom guitar. Yeah, okay. So, but but uh, acoustics are totally different than acoustic guitars are totally... Well, they used to be. Now, okay. they're doing that so too. much CNC technology is yeah. that... Um, yeah, you know, okay. It's, it's all the same, getting to be a blurry line. I think. Yeah. It depends on who's using computer technology and who's not. Um, it's more traditional and who's not uh uh then too when you were at nuka pay you know there, i'm guessing there wasn't a whole lot of guitar stores in town is there was well there was pete's over in st paul pete's well, that's his uh, historic store okay he sold a lot of vintage guitars and you know he for a long time he was open to the public but towards the end he was appointment only mm-hmm but he had a, a long list of local players that bought guitars and amplifiers from him. But he also had a lot of national, international guitar players coming through town. Clapton, uh, the Stones. Um, he had a reputation for going all over the United States and cherry-picking guitars from under somebody's bed <laughs> that sold him a, a <laughs> uh, $5,000 guitar for 100 bucks. Yeah, you know? yeah. Those stories aren't around that much anymore, no. but that's what Pete used to do. So so, so with with the stores, was there a competition between uh, the repair guys or between the stores, or was there certain clients that went to certain places, or were there a competition? Were you, well, were you looking for clients or this type, or you like this type of music, so you wanted to work with this guy, but somebody else had them, or was it... Did you know all the other repair guys? Was well, it a, I knew a community? Dave Blackshear from Pete's, and actually Dave came to work for New Cape for a very short period of time before he went on to a company called Display Masters. Um, I knew him. I don't know who did all the repair work at Torps. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the guys at Hoffman Guitars um, were basically acoustic guys you know and then there was the homestead picking parlor Mm -hmm. out in richfielder was that all yeah i think that was probably richfield was right on the border between richfield and edina Mm -hmm. Um, and then the podium okay in uh you know close to lake street was that on lake street no it was in the university area oh okay in dinky town dinky town there you go and did you i mean was there communications between you guys when when you got a guitar that maybe you hadn't worked on before but somebody else did? Could you tell who worked on it? Did you have your identity? Was there an identity with a repair guy and a guitar or not so much? I don't think so. I was out to Bongo's shop, Bud and Bongo's in Hopkins a year or two ago, and he showed me a Stratocaster, and somebody had done a refret to it. Looked at the fretwork and it says, "Oh, that's mine." Oh, really? So you could tell it was well, your, I, you know you get yeah. certain mm-hmm. you do certain things. Right. That's to what the I was wondering. Yeah, that's what I was can, wondering. But I could recognize my work, but I don't know if I'd be able to recognize anybody else's work. Okay. Um, and then was there some competition between getting a musician? I mean, was if there was somebody out there that you really liked, would you would you? No. Kind of want to work on his guitar, no. or would you not want to work on his guitar, or whether it was no feeling no, like that at all? Whoever walked in the store, okay. you know, Nootka Pay was a really crazy place because they catered to. Well, maybe I shouldn't use the word catered, but <laughs> you had the 
black bands, mm-hmm. Prince, Jesse Johnson, Jellybean Johnson, Sheila E., bands like that would come in and then juxtapose those against like the suburbs, Tommy Stinson from the replacements, Chris Osgood. Um, then you had the long hair bands like Slave Raider, mm-hmm. um, Jeff, Jeff Lovin. And then you got acoustic guys, Leo Kaki would come in all the time, Dakota Dave Hall, Ann Reed, um, jazz players, Jeff Shapira, um, you know, guys like that. Mm-hmm. No, then, then I can't forget the blues guys. <laughs> you know, right. the, fabu- the fabulous Minnesota Barking Ducks. Mm-hmm. Who can ever forget yeah. that band? What a yeah. great band. Doug Maynard, the Hoop Snakes, mm-hmm. Lamont Cranston. So, you know, it was a wide range. They didn't, I didn't advertise for them to come in. They came right. in on their own. Right, right. But you had that, you know, it seems it, for a music guy like me, it seems like that's a lot of different things that's a lot of different sounds it's a lot of different guitars different styles different everything so there's got to be a wide variety of knowledge that you have from it's, all these different people and and what who's who and what you have to kind of know it's you have asking to have a, report. a lot of questions yeah. and you have to have but you have to have a rapport with them too kind of well you know? yeah i mean i when you have to I, be personable you have to be pretty personable to, you know honestly when i started out um in 84 me, Dave, and Mark worked together for a little while. Mark left at the end of 1984. He went on to found um, an amplifier company. I'm drawing a blank on the okay. name. That shows my age, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Dave left in 1985, and I was left with the repair shop all by myself. Okay. I was a, probably the longest-running guitar repairman. That they at, ever had. At Nuka Pay there, huh? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, we're going to go into a, a jazz. I, you know, we're going to kind of change it up here and do a, a jazz song. This is uh, Joel Shapira. Yeah, um, yeah. Talk a little bit about, about him, uh, about his stuff. I mean, like you say, well, it's so individual. A lot, it's of these, a lot of these guys were so into their craft and so into getting their instrument correct that they would ask me for my home number. Mm-hmm. And I would get called a lot of times. I told them, I said, you know, if you need help after hours, let me know. This is before cell phones, right? This <laughs> is way before cell phones. <laughs> and so I would get calls in the middle of the night sometimes from you know, these guys. They would either come over to my house or I would go over, over you know, mm-hmm. over and... I remember one night Jesse Johnson called me and said, "Hey man, I got a, <laughs> I got problems." <laughs> this is like at eight nine o'clock at at night. Uh, I show up, he's in his pajamas, <laughs> eating you know cereal. <laughs> they were nice pajamas, silk. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But uh, these guys trusted me enough to call me up. Mm-hmm. I would go to their places, or they'd come to my place, and I'd help them out. So, so that's how. So I, so it wasn't just like working for people. It's like friends, and it's like people you know and people you get to know, and 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 it's more than just 
professional. You get to know their private lives. You get to know all about them. I mean, this is really an integral thing. I mean, you, you think about some guy fixing guitars. It's like, you know, you bring in a guitar and the guy sits at a bench and fixes it. But this is a way bigger deal. It's a bigger deal. I mean, whenever I see uh, Terry Isaacson, we end up talking more about motorcycles than we do <laughs> guitars. Really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's that kind of thing. The, the, the personal, you got to know personally and musically and, and a lot of different things. Um, this is uh, Joel. This is going to be Joel Sapira, and the, the song is uh, You Don't Know What Love Is. Uh, do you want to say anything about his setup or his, I mean? Well, he plays a lot of traditional jazz guitars, archtop guitars. Um, his action is probably a little bit higher than most rock and roll guys just because that's, that type of tone is achieved with higher action. So, um, I think this album of his, which is called Triplicate, he produced in the year 2000. Okay. All right. So this is uh, Joel Sapira. Thank you. 
And that was uh, Joel Sapira with uh, You Don't Know What Love Is. And uh, uh, we're talking to Barry Haugen here, who, who uh, is a repairs guitars for a lot of these guys. And uh, it just amazes me that, you know, as being a, not a musician and not a player or anything, that it's the exact, that you go about it, his working on his guitar the exact same way you go about working on uh, Jelly Bean Johnson's guitar. I mean, that that's really kind of amazing to me. I would think it would be way more sophisticated in one than the other or anything, but, but it's, it's really a, a general thing, and that's something that I've really learned tonight. That I, it's just, it, I mean, just listening to that music, you would think, that, that there's a whole different style there. There's a whole so there's a whole different style to a guitar, but the guitar is basically an instrument, and it's basically fixable, and that's what you do, you know. Well, again, it's it's you know it's the person, you know. Of the person, it's a voice. How do you want this voice to sound? What do you need me to do to get your mm -hmm. voice to work? Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I don't understand too much about is pickups. Um, there's a certain pickup and there's a certain style pickup. Now, I, I don't know what a pickup is or anything, but uh, uh, when I was with the guys from Flip, they were playing with Cheap Trick, and they were begging Cheap Trick's tech guy for a, a Rick, a Rick's pickup because it said it was so unique or it was so different. What's, is, is the pickup is the bar at the bottom of the strings, right? It's basically a magnet with a wrap of very fine wire that's wrapped around it. And when <coughs> it's plugged in, it senses the vibration of the string. Mm -hmm. And some pickups can be wound, underwound, it can be overwound, it can be hot, it can be soft and hollow like on a jazz guitar. The output of the pickup determines the overall sound of the guitar when it's amplified so is that a signature thing can that be a signature thing from a guitarist or it not? can it can i mean there's certain guitar players that like certain pickups are like guitars there's a million of them okay. out there and there's guys that make handmade you know pickups there's factory pickups there's factory pickups from the gibson company the Fender Company, there's offshoot companies like Seymour Duncan that makes replacement pickups, both for Fender-style instruments or Les Paul-style instruments. It's You're getting into another hemisphere <laughs> oh, okay. when you talk, you know, pickups. Is, is that something that you really have to know when you when a guy brings in a guitar, what type of pickup or what he's... Well, does that, you does know, that dictate they, anything You know, they might come in and they say, my pickup isn't hot enough. I need mm -hmm. more output. Okay. Well, let's try this. Oh. Let's try that. Okay. It's, it's a matter of of ear trial and error yeah. a lot okay. of times. And uh, uh, another thing I wanted to say was you were a drummer. I and, was a drummer. And did you have so did you ever play guitar? You know, I learned guitar when I was pretty late in life, meaning in my twenties. Okay. <laughs> where most kids that pick up a musical instrument pick it up when they're in in grade school, mm -hmm. if not a little, maybe later. Mm -hmm. um, just using my kid, for example, I gave him a, a guitar when he was 12 or I don't know, 13 maybe, and it sat there for years. 
in years. And he finally picked it up, and he's a gamer, all right? So a lot of your listeners probably have kids maybe in their 20s or whatever that play games. My kid learned how to play a guitar looking at apps and... Guitar Hero and stuff like oh, that. Or. And he he has never had a guitar lesson okay. in his life, and he's an amazing guitar player. Mm-hmm. Just based on his ability to make the visual connection with gaming consoles and how it applies on a fretboard. How, how mm-hmm. I don't know, it's way <laughs> beyond me, Don, way beyond me. Um, well, I was just thinking that... Um, you know, it's almost, uh, you would think to be a repair guy, you'd have to have a real good ear for guitar and for music and for tones, but that that's not so much because it's more knowing what the guy wants for his ear than it is for you yourself to have that. And it's that's why, asking a lot of questions. Right, like, like you said. How you know, do you want this to sound? How right. do you want this to feel? How do you want this so, to play? So you don't have to actually be a guitarist to be re- Repairing guitar, you can be a drummer, you can be anything else, but if you're good with other people... Well, I can handle a guitar here and there, but, you know, obviously my first musical talent I had was was playing drums, but I I really like and understand the mechanics Mm -hmm. of a stringed instrument. I know how it works. Mm -hmm. I know how it can be made better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, And you were talking about... uh, Jelly Bean Johnson and uh, 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 Jesse Johnson and, and Prince and Sheila E. and stuff. And you've got a little history with uh, the cloud guitar, the famous cloud guitar. From oh, that, that there's princess. an elephant in the room. Yeah. So uh, um, you actually have your name. You were talking about Eddie Van Halen's guitars in, uh, in the Smithsonian, and you actually have a guitar with your name on it in the Smithsonian. Well, this is a really convoluted story, and I don't know how much of this is going to... To get the whole story, there's a book coming out from a buddy of yours that interviewed you and talked to you on this. Well, John Woodland, a former guitar repairman for Willie's American Guitars, who went on to create a company for himself, he's also, I personally think, a master historian. Uh He's done a lot of great work on Paul Bigsby, who used to make guitar parts. Okay. He's done a lot of great work for Martin Guitars, unearthing a lot of history regarding that. He's a real huge Prince fan, and especially the Cloud Guitars, which if anybody (laughs) has ever seen the movie Purple Rain knows that that Cloud Guitar was pretty much a co-star. Yeah. You know? And and Who who cares about Apollonia, (laughs) right? (laughs) The guitar, that cloud guitar, was the co-star. Mm-hmm. Um, there were originally three of them made, four prints, and a fourth one was made for Warner Brothers, who gave it away as part of a contest in the UK. But um, and I and and you have a history with that because I that do was, have that, a history that was with that. made at New Capay when you were there. Yes, and when I met you. We were both working at the university, and uh, uh, we used to. They used to have bands out on North Plaza at noon, and they would. Uh, we'd go out and have our lunches, and and we just met. That's the first time we had met was out there. We were having lunch together and listening to some local bands play at Northrop on noon, and uh, you started talking about 
uh, a little bit. We started talking about music and bands and people that we knew. And then, uh, and then you started talking about the the cloud guitar and that the history of it is is not complete and not full. There's a lot of rumors. There's a lot. There's of a lot of and urban, kind of, yeah. a lot of urban mythology yeah, and, about the orange origins of that guitar. Right. And and you kind of knew a little bit personally about them, and you wanted to get the history straight on them. Well, and you've been working on that. That's something that you've had as a project, and you've kind of been working on a, a little, little bit. bit. But more so, John Woodland has right. really taken it forward. He was originally. Um, approached by a publication called Fretboard Journal, mm-hmm. and they asked him if they could, if he could submit a three thousand word history on on that you know guitar. Well, <laughs> he, he took that and ran into. Well, the last time I talked to John, which was a, quite a while ago actually, he's over forty thousand words. They printed some excerpts out of that book that he's doing with Gerald Ronning that was in the fretboard journal number 45 where he goes into some of the design of that guitar and some of the fabrication of that guitar and some of the history of it it's very brief Um, the book I don't know when it's scheduled to come out I would hope soon he's done over a year and a half of research on it um, Gerald Ronning, who's helping him, is one of the, I believe he's the chairman of the history department at Metropolitan University okay. here in town. So he's got a lot of credentials. He, Gerald was actually 16 years old, and he worked part-time at Newt Capay Music. Mm-hmm. He remembered when that first guitar was built okay. in 83. Um, there's a, you know, a lot of prints a lot of Prince fans out there, right. and they're really also interested in that, that guitar guitars. too. That's, that's his signature. That's his. That's one of his signatures. Well, I know? who, you know, when you think of Prince, you think of those, you know, guitars, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they went through a lot of color changes, and they had a, a lot of repair work done to them over the years. Like I said, I worked on them straight from '84 to '92. Yeah, that's and that's kind of your where you come in on this whole thing is that. Um, the story that I kind of heard was that he had a lot of g- different guitar techs and he fire- fired a lot of them every time he had a tour, he'd get rid of them and stuff. And so the history, they usually know the history of guitars when someone's touring because they have a guitar tech that kind of goes along with the guitar. Whereas Prince had a lot of different people involved in his guitar, but you were one of the people who went through the whole life of the guitar because you were actually the one repairman that always repaired his guitars when he was on tour, when he broke them or when they had to get fixed. Is that... Is that the deal? Are you kind of the one thread or one link through that whole guitar history that kind of ties everything together? Especially after 1985, that's true. Up, okay. Up to that point, there was three other craft people involved in that. Mm-hmm. Tommy Stinson, not from the replacements, but his real name is Frank Thomas Stinson, who passed away some time ago, who was the original luthier, if you want to use that <laughs> word of the first cloud guitar which is in the smithsonian right now and the smithsonian is doing their independent research on that guitar right now and when they do research they don't fuck around (laughs) they make sure it's real well they they, they put it through a cat scan to mm -hmm. make sure where all the joints are where the joinery of the 
it's um, it's amazing. And that's kind of where you come in because you're the one that always fixed it, so you know what would change, what well, changed, that, and what. That number one cloud guitar, which was featured in Purple Rain, wasn't actually played all that much. Okay. He kind of kind of babied that guitar. Okay. The that's second, not the blue one then, huh? The Blue Angel. Yeah. Now, some of your viewers are actually listeners who know a little bit about Prince uh, might know that one of his guitars was found over the summer and sold through Julian's Auctions out of San Diego. That ended up as being number two cloud guitar, which a lot of people thought was either stolen or lost. Mm -hmm. A long story short on that guitar is that Prince broke that in 1984. He told his guitar his guitar, uh, a tech guy, either fix this or destroy it. So the guitar tech brought it to Schechter in Los Angeles, and it sat there for years and years. Mm. And last year it, it showed up. It, huh? it showed up. And, and that was auctioned off at Julian then? It was, yeah, and if people want to check out there's about a 50-page um, a picture book called Prince Cloud II Blue Angel Guitar, published by Julian's Auctions, that came out with the auction. I believe the guitar, I think the guitar sold for $450,000. Mm -hmm. The neck was broken. Mm -hmm. If it would have been in playable condition, I'm sure it would have been a, a lot higher. Yeah. And you're... The whole history of you and the guitar and a lot of pictures are in that Julian book. Some of the history is in there. Some of the design history that the guitar was designed based off of a bass guitar that Prince bought in the 70s in New York. Mm. It was um, designed and built by a luthier by the name of Jeff Levin. And he was working at Matt Umanoff's guitar. Well, that bass guitar and the cloud guitar are basically identical. Mm -hmm. So that's where the shape of that guitar came mm -hmm. from, was that that Jeff Levin Ace guitar. guitar. It's called yeah. the Sardonyx. Okay. And that goes into heavy descri description in that Julian okay. uh, a catalog. That's available online. So if anybody wants to check it out, go to Julian's Auctions and look for the link to that guitar, and you'll yeah. find a pretty fascinating yeah, I, article. Yeah, you, you showed me that, and it is really fascinating, the, the whole history. I read the whole thing, and the, and the histories and the pictures and the uh, and, and the whole how they follow it around. Well, it's, there's, it's really there's interesting. a couple of photos of Dave Roussan in there holding the one of the, the cloud number two with the cloud number one was on the background in a, a bench. And there's a couple of pictures of me in there as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's a picture of me with the three cloud guitars, the black cat guitars, which were Honer Telecaster copies and the Sardonyx mm -hmm. uh, a bass. This is actually hanging behind you on the wall, right? Yep. 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 The original yep. design, yeah. And then I'm sure that all that information and pictures are going to be in the book too. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also got written up in Rolling Stone and had your picture. Was your picture in Rolling Stone? I don't or? think my picture okay, was in Rolling Stone. Okay, but you were mentioned in Rolling Stone when they did an article on that. No, my name that. isn't Dr. Hook, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, you weren't on the cover, but maybe someday. <laughs> but uh, uh, so, so, I mean, there's a big talk behind that guitar, and there's a lot of interest in that guitar and, and all, all 
four of them or three of them and the history behind them and stuff. And this book that Woodworks coming out, you think this is going to be the final and the, and the ultimate history of it? I mean, this will be kind of the, John, the set, setting everything straight? John has done his homework. He's mm-hmm. interviewed many, many people about the fabrication, the design, who was around Newt Capet at the time when it was built, et cetera, et cetera. The guitar at the Smithsonian is, without a doubt, cloud number one. And the research that the Smithsonian is going to do is going to prove that without a shadow of a doubt. Now, all these so-called internet sleuths and (laughs) experts on the fucking internet think they know what they're saying or doing. They don't know jack shit. Mm -hmm. They really don't. Yeah. Just wait till the book comes out and then... Then it'll all kind of come together. Read the evidence. Um, and then, two, you said when he gave that guitar to the Smithsonian, he gave no papers, no nothing. He just handed him a guitar and said, here's a guitar. So they, Well, that was a real surprise because I was still at New Capay at the time in 1981 or 1992 or something like that. And I got a call from Paisley Park, their guitar tech, and said, we're donating this guitar to the Smithsonian and we want to know how to spell your name. I says, why? Well, we want to give you credit. I says, are you fucking kidding me? You haven't (laughs) given me credit for this guitar the whole time I've Mm -hmm. been working on these guitars. And uh, so they actually displayed it without my name on it or Dave's name on it. And later on, they produced a date calendar in 1995 and they had a really nice layout of the guitar and they credited both me and dave okay i think that story is going to change here after the new research comes out they're going to they're going to credit jeff levin okay for doing the design work okay they're going to credit me they're going to credit um mark sampson okay who did a lot of the paint work on that and uh and so forth. It's an interesting history, and 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 you know, working Prince was a aloof guy and an oddball guy. He was really oddball, and like I say, he just gave they gave the guitar without any paperwork or nothing. And and you said he really never came into the store. You never you never really had a, a, a talk with him. Not at New like, Capay. Right? I mean, I remember being interest introduced to him at at First Avenue when I was down there for an event with Carl Diedolf the owner, and uh, he kind of looked at us and had Chick come in between us, yeah. and that was the end of that. Yeah. You know, he didn't want anything to do with us. Right, but then, you know, you were pretty important to his to his playing on, on stage and his, on his tours and stuff. I mean, you made that guitar work, you know. When, well, when, when, he, when he would beat it up, you would be was, the one that would fix it. You he know? was hard on those guitars. Yeah. The necks would break all the time. I mean, to a certain extent where... A couple of times they were the neck the headstocks were broken so badly that I had to regraft necks on mm. two of the three guitars. Yeah. Like I said, he didn't play number one, he played number two and yeah. three. Yeah. And then and that's where you come in with with the history of, of following the, the guitars to make sure which one's which because you know where you had added wood to it and which where you had repaired yeah. it. And that and that's the that's the link to you with the guitars of is a is all the work that you did on him as you fixed him, as he broke him up and you fixed him. Right. Um, uh, you also had some history with uh, uh, um, Jesse Johnson. Did you have some history with some of the other guys too, or was Jesse more? Well, uh, 
Jesse was a different kind of guy because he would come into the shop himself. He mm-hmm. didn't have anybody else come in for him yeah. like Prince did. Right. And he would, we could talk face to face. We were friends. Mm-hmm. He had my phone number. I had his. If he needed help after hours, he could call me. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. And a lot of other players besides, you know, Jesse mm-hmm. would take advantage of that. Right. And that was f- fine by me. I wasn't... I, like, like you said, that was the joy of, of doing the work was the people. You know, the, the thing is, Don, I'll tell you what. I never had people sign anything, no autographs. Mm-hmm. I didn't take pictures. I was just there because I loved to work on guitars. Yeah, yeah. Where other people, uh, I'm sure you know people that like to collect yep. autographs. Yeah, I do, yep. Right. So that's yeah. one aspect. I mm-hmm. was, you know, I would, I have many encounters with unfamous guitar players and famous guitar players, and all those are great, you right. know, memories. Right. Right. Regardless yeah. of their stature and mm-hmm. they're, you know, famous or not. And uh, and. Jesse went out to California, really became a famous, he's a famous guitarist. I mean, to this day, he's, well, he's, he's studio, huge. He's yeah. a stooge, yeah. huge yeah. in, in requests and stuff. He was here, I think, two summers ago with a band at First Avenue. I used to go out and see Jesse when he had his had his local band here after Prince and see him all the time down at First Avenue. I loved his music and stuff, and then uh, he kind of dropped off, and I didn't hear about him, but I really wanted to go see him because uh, he was playing uh, back about two summers ago. He, he came back and played his own stuff back at First Avenue again. And uh, I really loved his, his music and, and, and the stuff that he did. Um, He's a great blues guitar yeah. player. And great. so so we're going to go into one of his songs, but can you say anything about his setup or about well, his guitars? Or he anything? liked low action, too. He liked a lot of fancy paint jobs. I okay. mean, he, and you were a painter, too, right? You did a lot of painting. I did all his paint work, too. The polka he, dots? You put all the polka dots on them? The po- there was a <laughs> kind of a Epiphone black 335 with kind of a light pink set of polka dots on it. Yeah. That, that, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's me. <laughs> But he also brought in like a f- folder envelope or something of all these f- photographs <laughs> that he would cut out of adult magazines. And he wanted those uh, kind of pasted <laughs> on a Stratocaster style guitar. And I did that, and it took just a shitload of clear lacquer to cover all those <laughs> up. And I had my girlfriend at the time help me wet sand those out. And she was, holy <laughs> shit, what are we doing here? But um, <laughs> anyway, he the yeah we're gonna go into uh, so misunderstood. He's he gave me credit on his album every oh, shade really? of love really right here. Wow! And um, that's impressive. And then he he did an album release at the Roy Wilkins Auditorium. That's where I met Sheila E. and. My girlfriend at the time said, your, your, your tongue is hanging out, dude. <laughs> Come on, you got to hold it together. <laughs> she had that outfit on, and I think if you've seen uh, the concert film of Prince where she's in the outfit with the white arm and the white leg oh, and yeah. the opposite yep. legs yep. are yep. pretty much bare. That's yep. how she was introduced to me, and it was pretty <laughs> impressive. <laughs> 
And then did you do any work for any of the other people? Uh, Brown Mark or... Well, yeah, uh, all those Melody? guys came in. Maserati yeah. came in. Uh, Jellybean Johnson, I mentioned him. Obviously, mm -hmm. Prince. Um, but, I mean, did you work with those guys uh, personally like you did with Jesse? No, I would say uh, Jesse was probably... Was a special we, client? We had a, a connection. Okay. He, okay. He trusted me enough to bring me over to his home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's cool. So uh, this will be uh, Jesse Johnson with So Misunderstood.
And that was uh, Jesse Johnson with So Misunderstood. And we're talking to Barry Hagen, who is uh, repairs guitars and worked at Nuka Pay for many, many years and uh, is uh, currently retired and out of the business. Um, and you've you've got many stories. You talked about, uh, you know, going to Jesse's house and uh, going and seeing uh, uh, Steve Vai at, at the show, um, seeing his tech guy and looking at his instruments or his road case and, and a lot of different things and and the uh lenny kravitz you've you've met a lot of these people and you've got a lot of these stories um and then i've heard a few of them i haven't heard all of them but uh i i enjoy the one with uh steve miller when you were working at that at nuka pay down in the basement yeah, and, steve miller yep i can't forget that one yeah i remember well some of you guys that are or were rather nuka pay customers <coughs> know that the main floor, you walked into the main door, there was a, a counter, L-shaped counter with guitars hanging on the wall. You'd turn to the right and you'd go into the adjacent room with guitars and amplifiers. Well, behind those two rooms, there was a stairway that went downstairs. Um, there was actually two ways downstairs. Anyway, that was a way that I would go down to the repair shop. And when I'd get down to the bottom of the stairs, right in front of me, there was a set of French doors, which the top would open, the bottom portion would stay closed, and I could open up that top section. There was like a chalkboard on it with the repair shop hours on it and other, you know, bullshit. <clears throat> and um, I got down there on a Saturday. Uh, I think we opened at nine or ten. I don't. I don't remember. And I think I forgot to open up that French door. And I heard a knock on the door. And I opened up the door, and here's this dude with a crew cut, way, way fairer sunglasses on. And I'm thinking to myself, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> he says, I'm looking for uh, a Barry Haugen. I says, that's that's me. He says, I'm Steve Miller. And you know, it went in one ear and out the other before I realized, wow, that's Steve Miller. <laughs> he says, I'm in town to do a show with Ben Sidron, and my I just flew in and my guitar is screwed up. Can you help me out? And I said, uh, okay. You know, he says, I, I got your name from, uh, I think he said Billy Peterson. And you know what? To this day, I've never met billy peterson oh. so i don't know how he got my name mm -hmm. but that's kind of how newt capay grew uh, is word of mouth right. from like 1985 to 92 when i was there it was just a little 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 shop and mm. when i left it was a pretty big operation anyway um i invited him back into the shop area and i <laughs> worked on his guitar and we talked about all kinds of stuff other than guitars yeah and it was just i mean here's a real guy right that happens to be a real famous <laughs> guitar player and we're just shooting the shit about tacoma washington or whatever we were talking about right and uh it was it was a lot of fun yeah uh yeah and i and we've gone to some shows together um uh seen some different things and like I said, I'm not a musician, I'm not a guitar guy, so I love going to shows with you because uh, 
uh, I can I can ask you stupid questions about the guitar player. Is this guy good? Is this guy not good? Is this, what's what's his style? What's what's the deal? Do you know him? Do you know that? And uh, we were at uh, uh, the Dakota to see uh, uh, Peter Wolf play, and uh, uh, it seems like when I take you out, or when I take you out, when we go out to uh, to these shows you and stuff. Watch your words, yeah. <laughs> when we go out to these shows, um, there's always people that know you. And they know who you are. And when we were at the Dakota there, uh, you were so impressed with Peter Wolf's guitarist. Well, that was Duke Levin or Duke Levine. I don't know how you pronounce the name. I'm sorry, Duke, if you're listening. But, (laughs) you know, I'm really bad with names. But uh, and then and then there's a couple of guys that came up and 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 talked to you when we were sitting at the bar and you and you were introducing me to them. And I think one was uh, from from Willie's guitar. Well, here's the deal. Willie's American Guitars is owned by Nate Westgore. Nate used to work at Newt Capay. Okay. He used to manage the St. Paul store. Newt Capay back in the day had four different stores. Uptown, Ridgedale, Burnsville, and St. Paul. And Nate, I think Carl hired him out of Chicago to manage the St. Paul store, and we became friends. And to this day, if I walk into Willie's American Guitars, Nate will bend over backwards to help me out. Mm-hmm. With, you know. right. Right. So um, you and I were sitting back at the bar right. talking after the show. I think Peter snuck out with a hoodie on, and nobody <laughs> knew who he was. Yeah, he didn't. He wasn't too much with talking no, to but anybody. But then... Uh, I, I had seen Nate at the show, so I knew, and Nate and his wife were there. And then Duke came out, the guitar player, and they started chatting. So I walked up there and I said hello, and and uh, it was it was fun. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. We went to the. Uh, um, I was uh, so in, kind of impressed too when we went to the uh, the Longhorn. Uh, movie at the parkway there it had a premiere of the movie and uh we went and you knew a lot of the guitar players in, in the in the different bands there with uh, terry oh, isaacson and a lot of those guys you I know mean, al, I mean, al that, that's a long yeah that's a long time from when you were repairing guitars to now and they still wanted to talk to you and 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 were interested in you know and and a couple of them even said are you still fixing guitars are you still you know so i mean you know there's they they wanted to reconnect and they and they wanted to, to 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 see what was going on, you know. A lot of these guys. Did I hurt their feelings? I don't think so. I don't. They were all happy when they were all smiling when they left. I don't know if that was that is that because of me or because of you, but uh, I, I, I don't know that. But but you know you, you do know a lot of the a lot of the guitarists around town know who you are and you and uh, uh, you did some work for Curtis A. Who, who, who well that whole underground alt punk scene from Minneapolis, most all of them shopped at Newt Capay. If mm-hmm. they didn't buy something, they were hanging out. Right. If they didn't have something fixed, they were hanging out. And that was a lot of fun because, like I said, I got to Newt Capay kind of late in the game. I got there in 1984. I mean, if I would have been there in 79 or something like that, some of these guys would be old old friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, you were naming off a few people there. Well, you know, you got, I talked about the suburbs. Those guys came in often. Uh, Tommy Stinson from The Replacements was uh, 
he came in all the time. I did one of the weirdest guitar repairs for him that I did for anybody. He, he's a little guy. He, well, at that point, he was a mm-hmm. little guy. I mean, I don't know, 125 pounds <laughs> or something, it seemed like. Um, and he had this really heavy Gibson Explorer bass guitar. He says, this bass isn't heavy enough. You need to make it heavier. <laughs> I said, uh, what? <laughs> I went to a sporting goods store and I bought about a pound worth of lead weights, you know, for fishing. Uh-huh. And if the EPA would have seen me or no OSHA, they would have probably put me in jail. <laughs> but I melted all these lead weights and I bored a hole in the edge of Tommy's base, six inches long or something like that. And I poured in this molten lead into that hole just to make it heavier just to make it heavier did that so would that have changed the sound at all or anything or not or do you think uh, it was heavier (laughs) i don't know if it changed the sound or not (laughs) but that was a pretty uh strange repair i mean you know and then i you know chris osgood he was a teacher down there i did repair work for him jeff and steve from figures did That's a lot a of work band. from them. That was a great band. It was yeah. a great band. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing them them at the Uptown Bar doing a show, and all of a sudden, Peter Buck from uh, REM show, you know, walks up yeah. on stage. Shit like that don't happen anymore, Don. Right? Yeah. I mean, that was the. That was when everybody kind of yeah. It, it was, was a really so cool much. time yeah. to be in in Minneapolis. I mean, I I know you've read the book by. Um, yeah, Sin Collins. Sin Collins, yeah. complicated fun. I'm just go, going over that book. All the, all a lot of those guys in that book came into New Capay. Mm-hmm. Like I said, either to hang out, or they bought a guitar and amp, or they had guitar work done. Mm-hmm. It was great. Oh, like I said, Curtis Say would come in. I did a wacky repair for him. <laughs> You know, Kurt doesn't hold. He doesn't remember a lot of shit. <laughs> what was the repair on his deal? Well, he brought in a silver Stratocaster, a three bolt neck. There was a period of time where Fender really fucked up, and they put three screws in their guitars instead of four. And he was complaining that the neck moved around all the time. And he said, "I want you to epoxy this neck into the uh, a ne- or in, into the joint." I said, what? <laughs> Just do it. <laughs> I I actually ran into Kurt at Bongo's shop last January, and I, I said, do you remember that repair? He says, what are you talking about? <laughs> it, was, it was amusing. But was there anything like that would someone would come in and, and would want, and you could say, you'd have to say, like, you know, no, you can't. You can't do that to that guitar. Or, or did you just, I mean, some of these guys, like you say, they don't, they don't understand how the guitar works or anything, but they want a certain sound. And well, I had, I, had, I had one drunk come in one afternoon, um, and he had a really beat-up acoustic guitar. He says, this guitar belonged to Andy Taylor from Mayberry. <laughs> I said, no shit, really. I said, he says, I want you to do this and that to it. And I said, um, <laughs> Okay, well, I, a couple of weeks later, he came back to pick it up, and he was under the influence again. Pretty, He was really fucked up. And uh, I told him how much it was, and he just went off on me. And I, I said, listen, asshole, you come in here, 
and you tell me this is Andy Taylor's guitar. <laughs> That's bullshit, number one. Number two, you wanted me to do the work. I did the work, and no, you pay a motherfucker. <laughs> and his girlfriend was so embarrassed that she started crying, and he just backed right off yeah. and said, oh, yeah, I'll pay you. Yeah. So, you know, there's some head cases yeah. out there, yeah. but, you know, for the most part, I didn't have any any trouble. Okay. Uh how about for custom guitars? Did you ever do a custom guitar, get into a custom guitar, well, want to do a custom guitar, actually make a guitar? I mean, that's a lot different than repairing, right? Not acoustic, but I had a handful of customers that wanted custom electric guitars. Mm -hmm. And our scene here in the Twin Cities isn't like Nashville or L.A. or New York. People are... They're from the Midwest. <laughs> They're tight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't want to spend any money. <laughs> so consequently, I I didn't do a whole lot of guitar. Get okay. Custom guitars are expensive. Uh-huh. And they're and like you said, they're nothing more than just manufactured kind it of. It can be. Yeah. I mean, I you know I would actually make my bodies and necks from scratch. Uh-huh. I would go to the lumber yard. I'd harvest the different type of wood for the body or the neck, and I would do it the right Real, way. The right way. Yeah. 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 And so how many do you think you, you made? How many? Probably less than a dozen. Okay. And, and you said one was down at Bongo's place now, right? Is that still well, down there? Well, that's or? a different kind of deal. Oh, okay. That that's, was something you bought? And, no, that was one of the, um, ooh, I think I know what you're talking about. Well, I had a consignment down there at Bongo's for a long time. I, that got sold oh, to s- someone else. But um, I did... Um, Four cloud guitars for Rusan. Mm. He wanted to get back into doing the cloud guitars back in 2009. Okay. And he's not really a guitar luthier. Okay. He doesn't have a whole lot of woodworking experience, so he asked me if I could uh, help him out. Pretty reluctant at first because Prince was still alive and still suing people. Mm. And mm-hmm. uh, I relented and I made him a couple of guitars. Okay. Well, I made four. One is in my garage. One Bongo has, and Dave has the two, and that's how he got started doing his his knockoffs. His his knockoffs. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, how about for vintage guitars? Would you ever? Would you ever kind of? You might. You were around them so much, and you kind of knew, probably knew the costs and what they were worth and what they did. You ever get into collecting? Or, no, uh, I didn't. Unfortunately, not. No, I. I got a. That uh, just wasn't something that you were interested in. I didn't have the money. Oh, okay. I mean, back in the late '80s or the middle '80s to the late '80s, uh, guitars like that were really escalating in in value. Mm-hmm. They were being bought up by Japanese collectors, and and uh, who would have thought of paying eight hundred dollars for a nineteen fifty six Stratocaster? It was unheard of, mm-hmm. but. <laughs> No, it's thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah. It's going to, you know, um, any custom shop or Willie's American Guitars, you'll see guitars from the 50s and 60s, and they're four and five figures. Yeah. yeah. And that was something you never got into or never no. really interested or, no. or anything like that. I've got an old amp. <laughs> A 1962 Fender Deluxe, and that's, I think I, well, I don't want to say how much I paid, but cheap. 
mm. really, really cheap, and it's worth thousands of dollars now. Yeah. And my kid wants that. Go figure. <laughs> go figure. <laughs> uh, the next song we're going to is one from Hoop Snakes, and you worked with uh, Charlie Bingham. Charlie Bingham and Mick Massoff. They were awesome players and awesome guys, and, and I just... I, I, if I were to go out and listen to a band, it would be probably a guitar-based rock or blues band. And the Hoop Snakes, they were awesome. Mm -hmm. They were just just great. And you did a lot of you, a lot of work for Charlie. Or, yeah, or, I did. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. The album that you see right there. Um, jump I in and hang on. Jump in and hang on. They gave me album uh, a credit. Well, they on did. That. Did you get a lot of album credits and stuff? I Not mean, a whole lot. Uh, I but it must have been something when you got them. I mean, you must have really enjoyed well, getting yeah, that. You know, seeing your name on print on the back of an album was kind of neat. Yeah, you know. I mean, I mean, they've got a. They don't put a whole lot. They put a few thank yous, and that's about it. But, uh, uh, but you know, you're really involved, and then you, you got to have a real relationship with them when they start putting their, your name on albums and stuff like that, well, and the, giving you the recognition that you kind of deserve. That's you know? kind of the thing, because you know, if you equate music with academia whenever you source a material for your work you give credit mm -hmm. give credit where credit is due mm -hmm. um these guys did that yeah you know they, they understood the music and what it took and and who who helped them get to where they got yeah, to i know? mean unlike prince and i'm not coming down on prince but he never gave credit to anybody mm -hmm. on his albums mm-hmm he never talked about Newt Capay, never talked about, he talked a little, little, very little bit about Dave, but that was kind of misconstrued. And he never, I mean, like I said, I was there from 80, by myself, 85, 92. Mm -hmm. And not once did Prince say anything about Newt Capay or, right. or me. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, that's, that's the way he is, yeah. but... You take the good with the bad, kind of, you I, know? I guess. You know? Guess so. But the good is nice to have. I mean, seeing your name on the albums and seeing it's your name in Rolling Stone. And, the, and, the and it's, it's something you leave behind. It's your legacy. You leave it behind. Your kids know, you know, what you did and well, who you were. Well, and the fact that my name is on that guitar at the Smithsonian mm -hmm. is... Huge, yeah. Pretty big, too. Yeah. This will be the, uh, the Hoop Snakes with uh, Still Raining. She ain't coming back I watch my world slowly 
and uh, now that was uh, uh, still raining from the the hoop snakes, and uh, and you're you retired. You retired out of uh, carpentry work and out of the guitar work, um, but you're kind of getting back into it now. That you have some time on your hands, and you retire it out. And and uh, who so who are you who are you going back with to? Uh, well, to I. You know, after I got out of uh, New Capay Music in 1992, I went to go work for a company called Display Masters that did custom cabinetry and casework and museum work. Mm. Uh, did that for about 10 years, and that business went out, went out of business. <clears throat> and I got into doing commercial carpentry work, both commercial and residential. And I think about the last eight or nine years of my life in that lifestyle i worked at the u of m and that's where you and i met yeah yeah and, and um, you retired you retired well, from i've the u retired there. from almost th three years now i think mm -hmm. close to it and um i recently was approached by chris quinn who if you guys know any violin shops in town is called quinn violins but he a couple of years ago started up a guitar store called fret central and they're off of 21st and east uh hennepin so not that far west on the east hennepin off of 280 mm -hmm. pretty easy to get to but he asked for some help in his guitar repair shop and that was back in february that was before covid okay and we we're getting all geared up to go and then the covid thing happened and so everything came to a screeching halt Anyway, I've been the last, I don't know, three, four weeks, I've been going in to help him out with his guitars, and um, I'm only working one day a week. Mm -hmm. It's really part-time. Are you, are you looking to get, kind of get back into well, doing it, guitars? I if, mean, it's going to be at retirement time. I understand if that. If anybody that's listening to this program remembers me and remembers the type of work that I did for him and wants to hook up with me again, you can call either Chris or Matthew at Fret Central. And unfortunately, you got to make an appointment. Yeah. To, you know, this this COVID thing, you mm -hmm. just can't walk in anymore. Right. So I'm there on either on Tuesdays or Thursdays. Yeah, I'm going in. Well, I remember <laughs> what you said about you know, specific dates. Yeah. Typically on Tuesdays. So... If you want to get a hold of me, call them up, make an arrangement to make an appointment, and I'll look at your guitar, your, uh, your guitar, whether it uh, be an electric or acoustic. Okay. Um, and, and have you kept in touch with uh, work-wise, uh, maybe doing a little bit on the side here or there? I've or always had a handful of customers from mm -hmm. Newt Capay that have had Stayed my number. I don't advertise, and I don't want to advertise. I don't do so social mm -hmm. media. I don't do Facebook yeah. or Instagram or anything like that. But people that know me have my number, and they want to get a hold of me, know how to get a hold of me. <laughs> the alternate way to get a hold of me is through Bongo, John Haga, over at Bongo's and Buds in Hopkins. Mm -hmm. We go way back, and we're great friends, and I've helped him out too, so... So you still had your hands in it a little bit here uh, and there, and, and a little bit. Yeah. It's basically for enjoyment. Fun. Yeah, it's for enjoyment. And like you said, you get to know that uh, music community. I, I've kind of got to know some bands through the 
the cable show that I did and stuff. And, and it seems like, you know, you kind of get sucked into that community a little bit. There's just a lot of great guys and a lot of fun and just a lot of interesting things going on. And, and if you can, it's, it's hard when you get in there to kind of not, not stay and, and just talk to people and, and, it's really interesting. It's an interesting community, the, the music community here in Minneapolis. Well, I really admire some of the guys that are still in it. I mean, Bongo was in it for many, many years at New Capay, and then he left He left New Capay. He didn't get out of the music industry, right. but then he had an opportunity to buy a music store, and he did. Mm-hmm. And he really enjoys it, and yeah. I think that's awesome. I mean, his store is almost, in a way, like... Newt Capay. Mm-hmm. It's where like-minded musicians can go and hang out and mm-hmm. have fun. Yeah, They don't necessarily need to go in there and buy anything. Buy, yeah. it's, it's just the camaraderie. Right. It's like a social club. It's, it's a friendship. Yeah. 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 Uh, we're gonna, the, the last song we're going to do is, is going to be the, uh, the suburbs. And we're going to go into Cowles. Um, Beige. Now you, you, you did some work. Beige is a, Course. He's a pretty quirky yeah, guitar player. Right. He hasn't been with the suburbs for quite a well, while. Quite a but while, but, but I have kind of a twofold relationship with the suburbs. Um, there is another employee at New Capay Music, Peter Nelson, that uh, uh, he did a lot of guitar repair work. Okay, and. He did other things too, shipping and re- shipping, receiving, blah blah blah. He had a band too, and um, he he knew I was a drummer, and he needed a drummer, and he asked me to if I need a drummer. You want you want to play? And I said, we well, okay. So we played. And this is a typical Minneapolis. You know what? I just fucked up his name. Peter Fleming. Okay. I am sorry. There's two Peters at New Capay. Okay. Peter Nelson and Peter Fleming. So I need to correct, correct myself. Yep. Anyway, uh, I started playing drums with Peter's band. And I was over at his house one night. And his wife, Liz, and Peter and I became really close friends. And we're hanging out one night, and all of a sudden, the suburbs showed up. And I've been watching the suburbs for years before that. Mm-hmm. They they played, you know, they played the Longhorn, First yep. Avenue, Seventh yep. Street. They played a lot of colleges. I used to go see them at Saint Olaf College and Carleton and Northfield. Mm-hmm. And I always thought these guys are awesome. They're mm-hmm. great. And all of a sudden, these guys show up at Liz and Peter's place, and what are the suburbs doing here? And then I realized, oh, Liz and Hugo are her brother and sister. <laughs> so we played a couple of gigs in front of the suburbs, and when the suburbs kind of retired for the first time, they played two sold-out shows at First Avenue. And as a warm-up band, playing two sold-out shows is pretty intimidating. Mm-hmm. Right. And awesome at the same time. Mm-hmm. And those guys always liked my drumming. And and uh, Michael Halliday, the original bass player, would get his stuff done, you know, from... Mm-hmm. And Beach, he was a crazy dude, but he liked his Les Pauls, and mm-hmm. he liked... 
one, one I'm working. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of my connection with okay. the suburbs. What the what was the name of the band that you were in? Uh, Creatures of Habit. Okay. I'm sure you've never heard of them. <laughs> Someplace out there, there was floating a demo, and I don't know whatever happened to that. I never, I don't think I ever heard it. All right. But it was the typical. We played. But so you were on the stage at First Avenue, sold out shows. I mean, you've you've been on on that on both sides yep. of the bands. Yeah, thing. yeah. So the ba- the band I was in, we played Uptown Bar, you know, mm-hmm. quite a bit. Warmed up uh, the Jayhawks a couple of times, McCready's. Um, those places don't <laughs> exist yeah. anymore. No, a lot those, of those, are, places, those yeah. places are gone. Yeah, a lot, a lot of those places everyone used to go to and used to really have fun and see those up and coming bands. Well, and look stuff at all the friends missing. You know, the four hundred bar yeah. gone. Yeah, Five Corners gone. Yeah. Now with this, you know, COVID yeah. shit. Everything is gone. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be a, a different world coming up. Uh, all right. So thanks for coming on. Is there anything else you wanted to say or, or anything before we, we, we sign off here? Um, you got everything that, uh, anything you wanted to say? Or? I better shut up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming in. I really appreciate it, Barry. It was thanks great, for having me, Don. It was great talking to you and listening to your stories and your history, and, and it's really been interesting. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. This will be uh, The Suburbs with Cow. and see but they go move they move over to Barry for joining us on this episode. Thanks to Javi for putting it together and to Jimmy for running the board. You can hear this episode again or any past episodes of the Don Podcast anywhere podcasts are available. And thank you for listening.